Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book Rakundra's First Cruise by Arthur Ransom. This is the sixth part of the reading, and we're continuing Chapter 11. Now on with the story. Chapter 11, Helsingfors, Swinging the Ship, Continued. I remember, in reading the logs of other people, experienced mariners, my disgust and annoyance when, in a single sentence, they dismissed the swinging of their ships, swung ship, and drew up table of deviations. That is the professional manner of recording the event, and if you are not such as they, you are left wondering how they did it. At least that was so with me. I was left wondering and was ashamed to ask, but the business of ship swinging is an interesting one, and whereas experienced mariners may skip the next few paragraphs, I am sure there must be inexperienced mariners and even people who are not mariners at all who will be glad to know how the thing is done, and in place of the cabalistic words, swung the ship, to have an actual picture of the ship being swung, or rather being lugged by main force round a wooden dolphin until she headed in turn on each one of the 32 points of the compass. There was a hard northeast wind blowing in the morning, and letting ourselves swing by a long line from the mooring buoy to which we had made fast, we paid out line slowly as we worked stern first towards the dolphin, the anchor hanging deep in the water ready to hold us up. When near the dolphin, we loosed the buoy and held with the anchor while I got into the dinghy and took a warp across to the dolphin. Then we hauled up the anchor and, shortening the warp, were swinging close by the dolphin while waiting for the arrival of the stout, red-faced, English-speaking Finn who spent every day of his life in the swinging of big ships. The dolphin is a stout wooden construction built on piles and so fixed to the bottom of the sea. Above water, it's shaped like an inverted cone, on the top of which is a smaller cone with the narrower end uppermost. The lower cone, being bigger than the upper, forms a platform on which a man can walk. Round the upper cone is an iron belt, working in a groove. At opposite sides of this belt are rings, and from these rings, warps are taken to the bow and stern of the ship. The ship presses against the lower cone and, in whatever direction it may point, is kept in position by the warps to the revolving ring. A steamship is swung by simply steaming round the dolphin and in contact with it, stopping for a moment at each compass point. The principle of the thing is simple enough. The dolphin may be taken as a fixed point. On the land, at a considerable distance from it, are marks so placed that when the ship is in contact with the dolphin and heading directly on one of those marks, it is heading towards a known point of the compass. By observing at this moment the compass to be corrected, it is thus easy to discover exactly what its error is on that particular point. Just as we were making fast, a small boat was rowed out to us carrying the red-faced fin, who was a little disconcerted to find that the ship he was to swing was so very much smaller than the big vessels to which he was accustomed. However, he paid her a compliment or two when he heard where she had come from and set very seriously about his business, after hurting our feelings a little by asking, Will I put my foot through if I stand on the cabin roof? You will not, I replied. You can dance on her, said the ancient, and with that the work began. On the top of the cabin roof, the Finn set up a heavy tripod carrying a sighting apparatus. At his command, we pulled Rakundra round that dolphin till he had one of the marks in line with his instrument. 
The Dolphin was built for the swinging of big ships, and we had trouble in adjusting things so that we could use it for a cundra. The edge of the platform pressed against our shrouds, and we had to take them down on one side. We decorated her side with all our fenders, and finding them insufficient used our spare mattresses. However, in the end we got the thing to work. The fin would call out the actual bearing, north, north by west, or whatever it was, while I, darting to our steering compass, called out the bearing indicated by the card and the lubber line. We had in no way exaggerated the inaccuracies. The fin had brought with him two magnets, brightly painted, which he screwed down in the steering well in positions found by experiment. These magnets roughly compensated for the effects of the mass of iron in the motor, so that the compass became more or less correct. Then, point by point, with the help of a couple of sailors borrowed from another yacht, we pulled Rakundra around and held her steady on each one of the 32 points, noting at each point the difference between actual and compass bearing. It took a long time, for the wind was strong, Rakundra heavy, and the fin conscientious. However, it was done at last, and down in the cabin, over a bottle of vodka, the expert worked out his results, drawing up a table on the continental plan while I translated them into a form readier for actual use, in one column writing the course, and in another the course to steer by our compass. By noon, the work was done. I put the fin ashore and hung up the completed table in the cabin. With that, we were both for starting, while the wind held, late in the day though it was. I took in water, made my farewells at the Nylands Club, and, without anchoring again, cast off directly from the dolphin and tacked out of the harbour. Chapter 12 Helsingfors to Reval. It was 1.15 when we sailed, with the barometer at 30 inches of mercury, about 1,019 millibars, and rising, and the wind strong and easterly. The Nylands Club had been racing in the morning, and we met many of their boats coming in heavily reefed as we worked out through the Boyd Channel, which Boyce had shown me the day before. Three big grey ships of the British fleet were at anchor in the outer harbour, but we were having our work cut out for us, twisting in and out among the boys and had small time to look at them. Outside there was a steepish sea and we were getting a little splashed even before reaching Grohara Island, which we passed at 2.20. Grohara is a small rock with a stout white lighthouse upon it to be left to westwards. The last time I had passed it in daylight was in winter time when an icebreaker was ploughing away through the ice for a convoy of six vessels, and then there was the wreck of a little steamer that had tried to pass Grohara on the wrong side, and for her error was held there hard and fast on the rocks, and was covered, hull, masts and rigging, with a coating of thick ice so that she looked like a ship of glass. The ropes by which the crew had lowered their boat were still hanging from the davits, swinging stiffly in the wind like glass pendulums. It was difficult to believe that the jolly little island at which we were looking today had been, only seven months before, the centre of that desolate scene. Now, instead of being a hummock in a snow-covered ice field, it was set in a blue sea, splashed with white, the colours of the Finnish flag, while far to the north of it we could see the little islands and rose-coloured rocks, and farther yet on the pale skyline the domes and spires of Helsingfors, a picture only less beautiful in its way than the romantic entrance to Stockholm. From Gohara, we steered south and a half degree west, allowing rather more for drift than we should have done, and when we sighted the Aronsgrund light vessel, found it well away on the starboard bow. 
We steered to pass it close to, which we did at 4.17, 15 miles out from Helsingfors. By this time, the swell was such that, though we were so near that on the top of a wave we could see the caps of the men on the light vessel's decks, in the trough we could not see the vessel at all, not even the tops of her masts. The wind had been blowing hard easterly for most of the time we had been in Helsingfors, which was enough to account for the size of the waves. We shipped a little water, and the ancient, obstinate as usual, put on his oilskins too late, and remarked sadly, I am already wet in mine starn. I had put my oilskins on earlier, and had much amused him by carrying away on mine starn the blanket from my bunk as I rose from pulling the trousers down over the boots. Nothing will tame the prehensile tendencies of tarpaulins. The wind had shifted a little, but our course gave us a point or two to spare, and we gladly took up the centreboard. Then, in a hardish gust, a faulty fastening in the mizzen peak halyards came adrift, and the peak fell down. We lowered the sail and tied it, lashing the boom to the rigging to prevent its banging about, and found that, sailing as we were not absolutely close-hauled, she steered perfectly without the mizzen. We sailed her so the whole way across the gulf, the wind being so lusty that we willingly accepted from its own strength this shortening of sail that we should perhaps have been too proud or too lazy to reef in for ourselves. After this, which happened close by Aronsgrund, Rakundra settled down to her work and gave us a most exhilarating sail. It was a glorious day, bright, hard sunshine with cold in the air, as we get in the Baltic at the back end of the year, a good wind heeling her over to the railing, stiff as she is, and that mighty swell lifting as sky high and dropping us again into a blue depth walled by water. It was easy work steering now that that mizzen was gone, and we took it in long spells without the least fatigue. This is better than coming across, said the ancient mariner. Wind's all right, but it's fog as I can't stand. There's nothing worse for sailormen than when that fog he spreads himself on the water and we go howling around all blind. At 6.25, the ancient saw land on the port bow, which we knew must be Coxcar and Wrangell Island, and almost at the same moment I got a sight of the Ravalstein lightship to starboard. By nine o'clock we were between Wolf Island and Nargan, and could consider that we had crossed the gulf. But we were very far from getting into harbour. The wind had been falling away towards evening and shifting to the south, and it took us as long to make the ten miles remaining as it had taken us to cover the thirty-five that we had left astern. Yet at this moment, before the sky wholly darkened, we could actually see the spires and chimneys of Raval, and the huge crane to the west of the town, looking like a gigantic bird with outstretched wings. Then came complete darkness, and a very cold night. We took turns at the wheel, the watch below occupying itself with the sidelights. I may say at once that the watch below envied the watch on deck, and, cold as it was, preferred the tiller to the sidelights. Fine copper sidelights they were too, pre-war, bought last year and horribly expensive. I had hesitated over their really shocking cost, but had remembered the smaller the ship, the more her need for good lights, and had gone without new shoes, refrained from buying a new hat, and plumped for the best and most expensive sidelights, I could buy. All winter they had lain in my room beside compass and lead line, log, sea anchor, sextant and cabin lamp, and shining there with the promise of the summer's cruise, had warmed me with an inward glow 
What time the snow was deep in the garden outside and the thermometer stood resolutely at zero or considerably below. On the smooth passages from Riga to Runo and from Runo to Paternoster they had burned well enough and it had been a pleasure steering through the quiet night to know that the green eye and the red were gleaming brightly for any other ship to see. But during the gale that followed they had failed us. We had done our hopeless beating under jib and mizzen, trying to make Baltic port with our lights out. We had wallowed about in the night between Pekarot and Nargen, knowing that we showed no light to any other ship, and again going into Helsingfors as the wind got up off Aronsgrund, they had failed us, and by now it was abundantly clear that they were but fair-weather friends and would burn only in a comparative calm. Tonight, the watch below cleaned them, trimmed them, filled them, brought them on deck and set them in their places, only to see them go out abruptly and decisively as soon as they were there. He took them below, trimmed them again, wrapped them in sackcloth for shame and as protection, and brought them out again, cuddling close as if they had been favourite lambs and he a careful shepherd, only to see them drop into darkness the moment they felt the wind above the cockpit combing. He devised a new method of protecting them, thought of some other way of keeping them alight, took them below, retrimmed, relit and brought them up again, nursed like babies, to receive another blow from fate upon the optimism that grew less sturdy as the night wore on. Then the man at the wheel, of course, thought that he could do better, so we changed jobs for half an hour, until the other man's optimism was hammered into the same shrinking, tender state as that of the first. Finally, we both gave it up and kept them muffled in the galley, hoping to be able at least to show one dying flash of the right colour to any ship that we might meet. The riding light, a simple, cheap, ordinary affair, burned well, and we kept it among our feet in the cockpit for warmth, and to be able to flourish it in case of urgent need. We had to beat the whole way into Raval, and beating is not the thing that we are best at. We could, however, get along with short legs to eastward and then long legs in more or less the right direction. There was no difficulty about it. Raval is a good place to make in the dark. Just east of the harbour mouth are two lights, one standing well back and very high, and another almost on the foreshore and low. These two, kept one above the other, lead the whole way in until one can see the lights of the harbour entrance. Moreover, one of them fades and goes out the moment the approaching or departing mariner has strayed to east or west of the safe channel. And so we stood close-hauled as near southerly as we could until the light went out, and then went about and sailed on the other tack while it shone out again, came under the high light, slipped clear of it, and again faded and went out, whereupon we tacked once more. This we repeated continually, creeping slowly nearer all the time, growing colder and colder as the night wore on. Towards morning, a little steamer passed us and anchored far ahead, close by the harbour. Soon after that, we could see the electric lights on the quays, a light or two up in the sleeping town, and the riding lights of the men of war in the western corner of the bay. We had long lost the muffled moon and began to rejoice in our slow speed, which promised to bring us, as indeed it did, among the crowd of anchored schooners and other small vessels in the roads, just as the sky was lightening in the east. Dimly ahead of us, we could see the pale hulls of ships, and already over to the east, the dark sky seemed to blench. 
and then, as it were quite suddenly, there was more light, and we saw as if at a signal the sails of a schooner coming out of harbour, followed by another, and another of the ships that had been waiting for the dawn. We passed the little steamer lying at anchor, tacking through the ships in the roads, crossing and recrossing the paths of the outgoing schooners, and came to the harbour mouth when, in the blue mist of early morning, the red and green lights on either side of the entrance glittered more like butterflies than lamps. They went out just as we turned in, took off our staysail and rounded up to one of the boys off the yacht club mole. We tied the damp sails till we could dry them in the sun, and while the ancient cleared up on deck I went below, and with fingers so cold that I could hardly strike a match, lit the primus and boiled water. With that, we drank the last of our English rum, and now suddenly, too tired to talk, dropped each on his bunk and slept. Chapter 13 Raval to Baltic Port September 5th, 6.20am, barometer 30.25 inches of mercury, 1,024 millibars. We wasted a day in getting provisions and taking on board the fine and new gratings for the seats of the steering well and the new iron horse for the main sheet, which we stowed in the forecastle for use next year, as its mass of iron would have played all sorts of tricks with our newly adjusted compass. The wind that would have served us so well had we been able to start before had died away and was replaced early this morning by a slight breath from the southeast, with which we drifted out of harbour on a clear morning while the smoke of the Raval chimneys was of divided opinions as to which way the wind was blowing or whether any wind was blowing at all. We, however, had made up our minds that the wind was southeast and set the balloon jib as a spinnaker and were happy to find that it agreed with us and drew. By nine o'clock we had bought Carlo Island due west. An hour later we had cleared it and were steering to pass close by Surop. The balloon now set as a staysail. Changes of sails were always a delight to the ancient mariner, who, tenderly handling our little tablecloths and pocket handkerchiefs, remembered sail shifting in the famous ships of long ago. My best sailing, he would say, looking critically at our balloon, was in the Demopoli, that's the Thermopylae. There was she and the Kutsak, the Cutty-Sark, and I was in the Demopoli. In those days there was racing between those ships, and not a man in any ship but would have his bet on one or other, if it was only a pound of tobacco. Double crews they had, and when I first sailed with the Demopoli, I thought officers and men were all mad. We never left those ships alone, we were shifting one sail or another sail for every little change of wind. Double crews, but none too many for the work, and before I had been on board a week, I was as mad as all the rest. There was real sailing done in those days. Today, however, no ingenuities in setting canvas would have been of any use to us. There ensued a period of absolute calm, accompanied by a psychological storm, for the cook demanded that the motor should be used. The ancient and I have never been shipmates with a motor before, and we do not like them, trust them, or understand them. After long opposition and trying to prove that we were really moving, although the water was like glass, we did at last try to wind it up and found that it would not go, whereupon the cook asked that it should be thrown overboard and was not pacified on being told that it was valuable as ballast. However, when a breath of wind came diffidently down to us from the north and we got steerage way again, she relented and gave us luncheon on deck. 
At 3.30 we had Surup Lighthouse abeam and saw a flight of 21 duck just off the point. At 4 we passed the new Surup blinking buoy and saw the four-masted German schooner which had followed us out of Raval away to north of us by Nargen with all staysails and spanker set. A fine sight, but too far away for the camera. By 6 o'clock we were just moving through the water north of Fall and it was already clear that the spell which lies on me when going westward along this strip of coast was not to be broken. Every time I have sailed from Raval to Lehepe Bay or Baltic Port, I have been becalmed off Surop, and spent the night drifting between there and Pekarot. I have spent as many as 30 hours on this passage of a score of sea miles, and I face it always with desperate resignation. This was to be my record quick passage, Rakundra easily beat both Slug and Kittywake, for she, first of my ships, covered those magic score of miles in under the 24 hours. The spell is not laid on that passage going the other way, but you will remember that it was precisely between Pekarot and Surop that we had spent that wild night after our futile attempt to beat into Baltic port with a broken wing. This night was to be the completest contrast to that night of storm, in scarcely rippled water, across broad patches smooth as oil, we crept slowly towards Pekarot. There was a fiery sunset over the sea to the northwest, against which the sails of the little fishing boats on the bank off the promontory were as if picked out with a fine brush and Indian ink. We saw, through the binoculars, the little fleet scatter as the twilight fell. Some made off beyond the point, and three under sails and oars slipped homewards into Lehepe Bay on the nearer side of Pekarot. Black silhouettes against that fiery sky, they turned suddenly into pale blots moving against the darker mass of the cliff. And then the cliff itself faded, and the lighthouse above it shone out, and there were stars and a wind that you could feel on the back of your hand, but would not blow a match flame crooked. The cook extremely angry with the motor and with us for our philosophic, indeed almost relieved acceptance of the fact that the smelly little creature would not work, went to bed. The ancient and I smoked together in the steering well after lighting our side lights which on this calm, bright night burned magnificently. We rounded Pekarot and then were met by a very slight breath from the southeast, against which we beat slowly into Rugowik. At anchor, off the harbour was a ship of the Estonian navy. Signal lights were chattering between her and the harbour. Small boats with lanterns passed to and fro. The faint wind brought us the noise of music on board. And then, as we came nearer, someone on board must have noticed us, and we were presently drenched with the blinding cold glare of a searchlight. They think we're another ship of war, said the ancient, and they're afraid we're going to ram them. If not, it was with very bad manners that they kept us in such a glare that we could hardly see what we were doing and could not see the tiny light of Baltic port. At last, however, they tired of this and when we had recovered our eyesight, we found the little red light of the harbour and stood on the port tack till it had turned to green and then keeping it so, tacked towards it and at 1.30am rounded into the harbour. We found not the comfortable harbour I had known before, but one of temporarily half that size. Two big schooners were lying berthed side by side against the outer mole, and we had to tie to the new tarred key which walled off the anchorage. 
now dry land, where, with other happy little boats, Kittywake had her moorings last year. We were glad of the new fenders from Helsingfors, and, getting ourselves pretty black, managed to keep Rakundra clean. We tied up, fore and aft, had a tot of hot but inferior rum, and went to bed. Finally, we both gave it up and kept them muffled in the galley, hoping to be able at least to show one dying flash of the right colour to any ship that we might meet. <laughs> I can't hold it. 